Uh, would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, as well as our friends at First Baptist Church in Arco, Idaho, and also our friends at Purpose Church in Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word. Uh, we're going to start a new series based on my favorite Bible story, uh, Nehemiah. Uh, just a great, great book of the Bible. He, uh, he, he, he is one of my favorite leaders. He's just an example. What a great leadership example he is. And the, in the Hebrew, the name Nehemiah means the Lord comforts. And one of the ways that God comforts people is he gives us, his people, a holy discontent about somebody who needs help. Uh, some injustice, something that needs encouragement, something that needs to change. And then he leads us from that whole holy discontentment to action on that thing, and that's how the Lord comforts. And so it's so appropriate that the parents of Nehemiah gave him the name, Nehemiah, the Lord comforts. So we're going to talk about fulfilling your part in God's story. And everybody has a part in God's story, and all are equally important, an equally important part in God's master plan, in his story. And so each one of us are live where we live, not by accident. We go to work where we work, not by accident. We're in our family not by accident. Everything is there by God's plan and his assignment to us is to fulfill uh, our part in his story. When everybody fulfills their part, then the complete story that God once told to the world will take place. But it all starts with a holy, a holy discontent. So let's start now with uh, verse uh, chapter one, uh, verses one and two. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Now, the kids just did a great job of like setting up my intro on a lot of this. But Susa was the capital of what is now Iran, the Persian Empire. And so the Babylonians, what is today the nation of Iraq, they're the ones that destroyed Jerusalem and dragged uh, them all into exile and scattered them around the world. So that's the Iraqis. But the Iraqis were eventually defeated by the Iranians by the Persian Empire, and their headquarters were in Susa, and so that's why Nehemiah, as an official in the Persian Empire, is there in Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Uh, he was, uh, we see here um, that the, the setting to this story, the context behind it, is that it was for, um, um, just a second, I will find my notes. There they are. Uh, 445 B.C., 141 years earlier, the Babylonians had destroyed uh, Jerusalem. They had destroyed Jerusalem 141 years later, earlier in 586 B.C., and it was a gruesome destruction of Jerusalem uh, 2,500 years ago. Uh, the Babylonians, what is today the nation of Iraq, built a ramp up to the walls, and they held it in siege. They gouged out the eyes of the king and right after they killed his sons in his presence. That is, they wanted the king, the last thing he ever saw in this life, to be the killing of his children, and then they gouged his eyes out, so that would be the last memory he would have of the last thing that he had seen. They hauled the best and the brightest all the, the, the most talented, the best and the brightest of the nation of Israel, 800 miles east uh, to the east. They castrated young men like Daniel. That's a part of the story. The children, that's actually not a part of the story that will be the children will tell tonight. Uh, that, that, that part of the story will be left out tonight. Um, 
All of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, maybe we will show up tonight after all. Uh, (laughs) They destroyed the temple. They literally carried away the best and the brightest. Now, 80 years earlier, uh, before the story of Nehemiah, Ezra, who the book of the Bible, it goes Ezra and then Nehemiah. Well, in Ezra, uh, he led a group of 50,000 Jews uh, back into the land of Israel, and they rebuilt the temple. So that was good. They rebuilt the temple. But the city is still in ruins. Uh, many people didn't want to go back to Israel. They were kind of comfortable in their new countries where they had been exiled. Uh, they had become comfortable, and so they didn't want to go back, and they really didn't care that much that Israel lay in ruins. But Nehemiah was inflicted with a holy discontent. He just had this sense, something's got to be done about this situation. My friend Dane Ocker, uh, pastors of church in Colton, uh, he says that living in Jerusalem at that time would be like sleeping in your house with no front door. Can you imagine going to bed every night and there's no front door on your house? Uh, Anybody can walk in, do whatever they please, take whatever they please. That's the equivalent of being without walls and without gates uh, in in Jerusalem at that time. Living in Jerusalem was like going to bed with uh, no front door. And so this caused him to have a, a holy discontent. How many of you remember Popeye? Anybody grow up on Popeye like me? And he used to have this saying when he would get stirred up inside. Somebody would threaten his girlfriend, Olive Oil. Now, I got a lot of notes after the 830 service because I said his arch enemy was Brutus. And so I got multiple notes. I could tell that people really, uh, it's good to know if people are listening carefully. They said Bluto was his arch enemy, not Brutus. Well, my assistant, Tina, in between services, hurriedly uh, Googled that, and it is, he had two enemies. Who knew? Brutus and Bluto were both. So take that, those that were correcting me at the 830 service. All right. Uh, there you go. So anyway, whenever Brutus or Bluto or whoever would threaten olive oil, he would get this anger, this holy discontent, and he would say this, that's all I can stands, I can't stands it no more. That's all I can stands, I can't stands it no more. Now, he was not good at the English language, but he was good at dealing with injustice. And, and that's what happened to Nehemiah right here. He heard what was going on back in Jerusalem. And he said, that's all I can stands, I can't stands it no more. I got to do something about it. And so we're going to look at the eight stages of Nehemiah's holy discontent. Number one, he looked at the facts. Uh, verse three, they give him the report. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And so we want to know the facts, even if the facts were unpleasant. Aldous Huxley uh, writes, facts do not cease to exist because they are ignored. Um, One of the reasons I believe the Allies won World War II over the Axis powers uh, led by Adolf Hitler and, and, and Germany, is the very different approaches of the two leaders. Winston Churchill, prime minister for England, and Adolf Hitler, the head of, of the Nazi Germany. And, and they would say that Churchill had a saying that whatever the facts are, whatever the truth is, I just want to know it. Even if it's unpleasant, he would say to his generals, don't be afraid to tell me the truth. Whatever it is, I want to know the truth. I want to know what the facts are, even if they're discouraging. 
And so they gave it to him straight, what reality was. On the other hand, Adolf Hitler, his generals all knew you had to spin the truth. You had to make it all look good. You had to sugarcoat it. You could never tell Hitler bad news. You had to tell him good news, and you had to kind of spin it and put it out of context in order to make it look like good news. And I know there are many things that contributed to the defeat of Adolf Hitler, but I think this is one of them. That um, Churchill was willing to take the news and to deal with the facts, whatever they are, even if they're unpleasant. And Adolf Hitler wasn't willing to do that. And you will be defeated if we ignore the truth, whereas we will succeed if we look at the facts, even if they're discouraging. And so what is the area of holy discontent for you? What's something in your life that you just believe should be different? Something in your family life that you have this stirring, this holy discontent about? What is something in our community in the city of Pomona, or the community where you live, in Ranch Cucamonga, Laverne, or, or Covina, uh, what, is, what is something in your city, in your valley, what is something at your workplace, what is something at your school, and you just have this holy discontent about this thing, and you just say, you know what, I, I, I'm just, cons- look at the facts, get all the facts, and, and even if they're unpleasant, and even if they're discouraging, he first of all looked at the facts. Number two, he grieved over human suffering. Uh, Verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He prayed like this for four months. We get the impression that it happened the next day, the the next events, because we just turn the page in the Bible or we go to the next verse. But there were four months that he went through this time of repentance and of prayer and of grieving before the Lord, waiting for the moment that God would tell him to act and preparing for what he would do when God gave him um, an opening. It reminds me of one of the greatest men of the 20th century, Bob Pierce. Uh, Bob Pierce, uh, God used to start World Vision International. Uh, Many of our people work at World Vision or have worked at World Vision in 1950. And then in 1970, he started Samaritan's Purse, which many of us are involved in. Many of you have been involved in with the Christmas packages uh, for children around the world that we do at Christmas, Operation Christmas Child. Uh, He started both of those organizations. Those two organizations are two of the greatest forces for good in the world today, just staggering what they accomplished. And it all came about because of this man and a holy discontent that he had. After World War II, he would travel to places where children were dying of hunger or malnutrition. He would become emotionally distraught. He would start crying so hard that his colleagues would try to drag him away from the pain and suffering to take him back to the hotel room so he could pull himself together. They actually tried to have him avoid areas of suffering because he'd almost have a nervous breakdown when he was in the presence of of, of, of suffering. And that holy discontent led him to do something about it, which is to start two of the greatest organizations in the history of the world for alleviating suffering in the world. Uh, that's a holy discontent. Um, it breaks your heart. It keeps you awake at night. You just can't stop thinking about it. What is your area of holy discontent? It may be to see your child get off of drugs. It might be to save your marriage from divorce. It might be to see your parents become Christians. It might be to help the children down the street that don't have uh, enough to eat and they go to bed hungry every night. What what, what is your area of of holy discontent? I see that all across our church. And as as soon as I start listing off things, for every one I mention, I will forget to mention ten. 
But all across our church, I see groups of people gathering together that have similar holy discontents. Now, you see everyone free, uh, where there's this sense of, you know, the, the human trafficking that's going on uh, right along Holt Avenue, and that why would God place our church at the corner of Gary and Holt if it wasn't for the reason to have a holy discontent about human trafficking. And I see them in that ministry in our church, everyone free, uh, gathering together to fulfill God's plan to deal with that um, um, injustice within our, within our city. I, we saw it a couple of weeks ago with the Four Life uh, group, that their hearts are breaking for broken lives and broken hearts and, and, and for the defense of the unborn. And this holy discontent has mobilized them into a group to deal with that injustice. I see it in the people in our children's ministry who just have this holy discontent. Oh, Lord, we've we got to train our kids in this culture to follow after you. I see it in our youth ministry people as well. I see it in our media team who just has this, this hunger to sp- spread God's word as far and as wide across our nation and around the world as they possibly can. I, I see it in, in people in our church that are just grieved over the hungry in our community and, and those without clothing and, and children that are, need tutoring after school from, from our community. And the list just goes on and on and on. And I know I'm leaving out 10 for every one that I've mentioned. People that have a hunger for people knowing God's word more. People that have a hunger for seeing people go to heaven instead of hell. Uh, People, I I think all of our holy discontent should be for our oikos. Everybody should have a holy discontent and know that God's assignment is to go to heaven and to take our oikos with us. All of us ought to have the same one. We have different areas of oikos and the Greek word for household, the 8 to 15 in our sphere of influence. And, and you don't work where you work by accident. Everything is orchestrated by God. You don't go to school where you go to school by accident. He's placed you in that time to, to go to heaven and take your oikos with you. But beyond that, there are other areas of injustice or things that aren't right or things that are wrong. And God stirs within you a, a holy discontent, and then he mobilizes people that have similar holy discontents to say, let's have an action plan uh, to deal with it. Then the third thing he did is he repented. So if you have a holy discontent, look at the facts, grieve over the human suffering involved in that, and, and then he repented. Uh, that is, he, he began to say, God, what is my part in the problem? Not just those people are doing bad things and I'm going to step in and do something about it. But, but Lord, you know, where am I a part of the problem? And, and that's what he goes through this next passage, just repenting. And we need to do that on a regular basis. Just like washing our hands. Every time I wash our hands, we should think about, Lord, what are the ways that I need to confess my sins before you right now and, and claim your forgiveness in Christ? Maybe every time you wash your hands is a good reminder that it's a good time to just confess before the Lord or to repent of, of something that is displeasing to him. Boy, I just heard a fabulous, amazing story yesterday. Uh, in 1818, 1818, Ignaz Philip Semmelweis, was born into a world of dying women. The finest hospitals lost one out of six mothers to the scourge of what they called childbed fever. A doctor's daily routine, here's, here's, we can see this clearly, they couldn't see it back then. But one out of six mothers died after giving birth, and so they called it childbed fever. One out of six mothers died from childbirth. Now here's the reason that we can see, but they couldn't see. A doctor's daily routine 
began in the dissecting room where he performed autopsies. From there, he made his way to the hospital to examine expectant mothers without ever pausing to wash his hands. Would, would work with the cadavers, with the people that had died of various diseases. Wouldn't wash his hands, would go straight over and begin to examine the expecting mothers. From there, he made his way to the hospital to examine expectant mothers without ever pausing to wash his hands. Dr. Semmelweis was the first man in history to associate such examinations with the resultant infection and death. After 11 years and the delivery of 8,537 babies, Dr. Semmelweis lost only 184 mothers. He dropped the death rate from 1 in 6 to 1 in 46. He spent much of his life lecturing and debating with his colleagues. Once he argued, puerperal fever is caused by decomposed material conveyed to a wound. I've shown how it can be prevented. I've proved all that I've said. But while we talk, 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 gentlemen, women are dying. I'm not asking anything world-shaking. I am asking you only to wash, wash your hands. But virtually no one believed him. Doctors and midwives had been delivering babies for thousands of years without washing, and no outspoken Hungarian was going to change them now. Semmelweis died insane at the age of 47, his wash basins discarded, his colleagues laughing in his face, and the death rattle of a thousand women ringing in his ears. All for lack of washing hands. But when we get that holy discontent, We've we got to repent of our role in the problem and, and, and wash our hands, wash our heart before the Lord and to repent as Nehemiah did. Notice uh, what he says here. He says in verse 5, Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But... If you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. Let's hold it right there for just a moment. I will gather them from there. What an astounding prophecy that is. And it's not just Nehemiah. It's done throughout the Old Testament, hundreds, thousands of years before the event took place. And you know, if that was the only evidence for the validity and authenticity of God's word, it would be enough for me. If it was the only evidence for the truthfulness of Christianity, it would be enough for me. It is absolutely amazing how the nation of Israel was scattered to the four ends of the globe. And never in human history has anybody been regathered to one spot to be a nation once again. It's never, ever come close to happening. And yet, within some people here, within your lifetime, May 14th, 1948, Israel became a nation. Overnight, just a snap of a finger, in fulfillment of biblical prophecy, from every nook and cranny all around the world, God regathered them, relaunched them 
as a nation. And, and, and what an unbelievable, I mean, you can even look at it and, you, and, and they, to the very day, I've seen it mapped out, where to the exact day, May 14th, 1948, predicted hundreds, sometimes thousands of years in the past, to the exact day this thing has happened. I don't know what the events of this last week mean. Uh, I know there are politics involved and there are people that argue both sides as to whether this will lead to peace in Israel. But here, just within the the last week, this past Monday, uh, as the United States Embassy was moved to Jerusalem, do you know that that was on to the day 70 years from the birth of Israel? 70 years to the day. May 14th, 1948 was the birth of the nation of Israel. 70 years later, May 14th, 2018, those embassies began. And I don't know what that means, but I do believe that Israel becoming a nation has started a clock running to the second coming of Jesus Christ. I do believe that. We have seen something in our lifetime that is a specific concrete prophecy uh, of, of biblical prophecy from years, hundreds of years, centuries, millennia, thousands of years uh, in, in the past. Now, for four months, Nehemiah uh, repents. For four months, he goes before the Lord, uh, repenting and, and praying and, and listening to the voice of God. Let's go to verse 10 now. He says in verse 10, They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. And he asked God to do it again. He spends four months doing this, listening to the voice of God, making sure he is hearing God's voice clearly. You know, this past week we had an event happen that has just torn our nation apart. And it has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with whether people hear Yanni or Laurel. Just tearing our nation apart. Just sweeping the internet. Sweeping the internet right now. Uh, just, just sweeping across. So let's do a test right now. Let's see how divided our congregation is, okay? So we're going to play it, and, t- and, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hands after it's over to say, did you hear Yanni or did you hear Laurel? Okay? Let, let's all listen together. Laurel. 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 Okay, here we go. How many heard Yanni? How many heard Yanni? How many heard Laurel? Oh, my goodness. That, that happened at the 830 service as well. But it's more evenly divided between the Laurelites and the Yanniites. Okay, right here at this service. Let's, let's, let's listen to it one more time. Listen to it one more time. Laurel. 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 Okay, how many heard Yanni? Let me see your hands. Okay, there they are. Uh, how many heard Laurel? Okay, look at We got a divided church on that. And that is a great example about how people can hear the exact same thing and hear something differently. Have you ever had that happen at work to you? You ever had that happen in a personal relationship, in a family dispute? How many of you in your marriage have ever heard Yanni and your spouse has heard Laura? Okay? And so he was quiet before the Lord. He spends four months um, repenting and, and asking God to, to guide him and to, and, to, and to know what the plan of action was when he got his opportunity. And then number four, he gets his opportunity. He took a huge, a huge risk. Verse 11 of chapter 1. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Now this position of cupbearer was a very important job. Some historians would say 
that next to the queen, it had the greatest influence on the king. That the queen would have the greatest influence on the king. But after the queen, the next greatest influence on the king was the cupbearer, more than any other person. He tasted the food and drank the wine uh, to test it because there were many assassination plots back then. And so who would you have taste your food and drink the wine before you took it to make sure that it wasn't tainted with poison? It would have to be the person you trusted the most because if that person betrayed you, then you could be poisoned. So he tasted all the food. He was chosen for his personal beauty and attractiveness. The king only wanted good-looking people in his presence. He only wanted winsome people, funny people, attractive people. That's all he wanted in his presence. Um, the cupbearer would have access into confidential meetings and private, intimate moments. Now, God put him in that position for a very, very strategic moment, for a moment just like this. And God has put you where you work, where you go to school, where you live, the family you're in. None of that is by accident. You are strategically placed there for God to give you a holy discontentment about some situation or about seeing your oikos follow you to heaven and join you in heaven someday. Nothing's by accident. The same way Queen Esther later on was placed in that royal position Uh, Her cousin Mordecai says, who knows that you've come to this position for such a time as this. And you are right where you are for such a time as this. Just like Nehemiah was in his particular spot uh, for such a time as this at that exact um, moment. Uh, Verse uh, 1 of chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. You were never allowed to be a bummer in the presence of the king. You couldn't be sad. You had to be good looking. You had to be attractive. You had to be funny. And you had to be happy all the time or they would kill you. You could be executed for being sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? You know, what? he, he, he tried to hide it to save his life. But he was so grieved. He had this holy discontentment, so he couldn't hide it. This could be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He puts himself in a place of danger and of risk where a miracle can take place. I love this quote by Christine Kane. Christine Kane says, a lot of people pray for miracles and then they avoid the context in which a miracle can happen. We play it safe. We, we, don't, we don't take a risk and so we pray for a miracle, but we don't put ourselves in a situation where that miracle can take place. Number five, he developed a plan. He had four months to think about this plan. It just didn't come to him in the split moment. He had four months to think about it, picking it up with verse 4 now. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. I love this. This is what you call an on-the-spot, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble prayer. Hey, this is a student. You students, this is when you look at the test, the exam, and none of the questions are ones you've studied for. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. This is when in business you walk into a room and it's an entirely different group of people for the presentation you thought were going to be there. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. This is when somebody in your life says something so annoying you know you're going to say something in response. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. 
Uh, this, this, this is one of those, this is one of those kind of prayers. Verse five, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set, I set a time. Now notice this right here. I set a time. I set a time. That is a miraculous thing in scripture. Uh, Chuck Smith, the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement, uh, he, he writes about this uh, time being set. He says, now this is one of the most important dates in history. The date that the king gave the commandment to Nehemiah to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. Because we are told in Daniel, the ninth chapter, that there are 77s determined upon the nation Israel. And from the time of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah, the prince, would be seven sevens and 62 sevens or 483 years. So here on the 14th of March, 445 BC, the commandment was given to Nehemiah to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. One of the most important dates in the history of the world because from this date, it could be ascertained the date of the coming of the Messiah. It would be 483 years. Here is the commandment given the restoration of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the city. So just as was prophesied in the word of God, 403 years later, Babylonian years of 360-day years, Jesus came in his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem on April 6, 32 A.D. It's unbelievable, the supernatural nature of this book. You can base your life on it. You can trust it. You can build your life on it. And isn't it something that God uses the decree of a pagan king to pull off his timetable? God can do anything he wants with anybody. He can use anybody. Uh, last night, um, I have to confess to you, I had not been all that into the royal wedding and uh, had missed it at 4 o'clock in the morning. I, I slept right through it and hadn't thought all that much about it. You know, I was doing a wedding my, myself that day, and so my attention was on that, that, this wedding I was performing. But I got up into, into bed that night, and um, I heard downstairs, my daughter Rebecca and her friend Jade was doing an overnight, and I heard from downstairs the royal wedding going on, and I'm like, oh my goodness, they're saying the Lord's Prayer. And then, oh, they're singing these great hymns, like, guide me, O thou great Jehovah. And so I Googled it real fast. I said, how many people are watching, have watched today the, the oh, it was, a re, it was a redo, by the way. It was a, you know, run again. That's what they were watching at night. And so I said, how many people have watched this today? And the number was three billion. And I'm like, my goodness, Lord, you can use the royal wedding. Uh, you, you, you can set a time with the royal wedding to have three billion people, almost half the population of the planet, heard them say the Lord's Prayer and, 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 and those hymns, those great hymns of, of the faith. And God uses this king, Artaxerxes, uh, to fulfill his perfect plan. So he develops a, a plan. Let's go on. Verse 7. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. 
And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted, granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Now, whenever you have a holy discontent and you begin to act on it, Satan is unhappy. The greatest compliment you can get is when there's opposition to that good thing you want to do. That, that's a compliment. When we're sleepy and when we're in our comfort zone, he's leaving us alone. But as soon as we get a holy discontent and we begin to act on that holy discontent, okay, now opposition comes. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Whenever God gives you a holy discontent to promote the welfare of somebody God loves, and that's everybody, somebody God cares about, somebody God loves, uh, there will be opposition to that. Um, You have to have a plan, though. And he has a plan. You say, how did he know all that stuff to do? Boom, boom, boom. Well, he had been thinking about a plan uh, for four months. I love this quote by Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley says, discipline, not desire, determines destiny. You don't just have a desire to do something. You got to have the discipline to have a plan, an organized plan to do that thing. That will determine destiny. I love this quote by Juma Ikanga. He's one of the great marathoners of all time from Tanzania. He says, the will to win means nothing without the will to train. Isn't that a great quote? You can have all the will to win in the world, but you got to have the will to train. You got to have a plan. You got to mobilize uh, in that direction. Number six, he left his comfort zone. He had the cushiest job in the world, the most comfortable job. I mean, second to the king, he, was, he had all the comforts that that time period allowed for a person. Most comfortable job around. And he leaves it all. It says in verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11, I went to Jerusalem. Two-month journey to Jerusalem to get his hands dirty in a dangerous, risky, messed-up situation in Jerusalem. He leaves his comfort zone. And then number seven, he was ridiculed. Here again, that same principle. You'll face opposition. They questioned his motives in verse 19. Uh, But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. And when you have a holy discontent and you begin to act on that holy discontent, people will mock you and ridicule you. What is this you are doing, they ask? Are you rebelling against the king? And so it was uh, questioning his motives. He was ridiculed. But number eight, he expected God to do a miracle. Verse 20, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. He expected God to do a miracle, and God did. They rebuilt the wall in seven weeks. Seven weeks they rebuilt the wall. Now, they weren't in California, okay? And so they were able to do that, didn't have to pull the permit. I'm sorry, that wasn't funny. Okay, that was a construction joke, Chris. That was a construction girl. You should have laughed right out loud, all you construction guys. Okay, rebuilt the wall in, in seven weeks. Now, a holy discontent is not about your car. Kimberly says to me all the time, Glenn, you got to get a new car. It's embarrassing. I have not had the holy discontent that my wife has had yet. (laughs) It's not about a car, not about a house. Uh, It's not about your favorite sports team. Holy discontent is not about your favorite music group or video game. It has to be worth dying for. That's a holy discontent. 
It's got to be worth dying for. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, said, if a man has not found something worth dying for, he is not fit to live. Got to find something you'd be worth dying for. Um, the great hymn writer, Isaac White, Watts, he wrote that great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. And then Thomas Akempis uh, wrote hundreds of years ago, It's the noble love of Jesus that impels a man to do great things, impels him to be always longing for what is more perfect. As the praise band comes back up, let's let's pray together. Lord, I pray as we begin this series, and I'm so excited about this series. It's going to have ramifications for our personal life. It's going to tell us things about our church's role um, here in our own community and the city of Pomona and, and, and Southern California. It's going to say things to us that we need to hear as a church as to how we can fulfill your plan uh, for us individually, how we can fulfill God's plan. It, it, it's going to do so much in the life of our church and in us individually. And I pray that it would start with a holy discontentment. And I pray right now, Lord, that that, that, that discontentment would go from our head to our heart that you lead it from our head intellectually to our heart and that it would burn there. And then, Lord, I pray that it would go from our head to our heart to our hands and that groups of us would coalesce with each other across our church family that have similar holy discontentments. And then, Lord, as we gather together, we'll mobilize around a plan. We'll, we'll put it into action to get rid of human trafficking. We'll put it into action to protect the unborn. We'll put it into action to train our children to follow you and our youth to follow after you. We'll put it into action to feed the hungry of our city and and to clothe those without clothing of our area and and to tutor the kids that need tutoring and and, and, and to to break down walls of injustice and, and to share the message of Jesus and to see people go to heaven instead of hell and, and that through this series you're going to move us with holy discontentment and organize us around a, a plan to change our community and to change our world for Christ. Move it, Lord, from our head to our hearts to our hands. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said.